Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Okay, good afternoon, and welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and today we're joined by Dr. Michelle Elam, author of The Souls of Mixed Folk, Race, Politics, and Aesthetics in the New Millennium. Thank you for being here today, Michelle. Thank you for asking me. Mm-hmm. To begin our conversation, do you mind sharing just a little bit, uh, before we get into the book, just a little bit about yourself? Um, where you were born, raised. I'm hoping that it'll lead to how you went from that to this. Yeah. Well, I was raised on both coasts, so both Harlem, New York, and then also in San Diego. And that bi-coastal experience was also inflected by a biracial experience. So uh, father who's white, mother's African-American, um, but of a certain generation where when you were raised, you just identified as black. There was a wide spectrum of people, of course, in New York, um, you know, green-eyed black folk <laughs> from from uh, Louisiana or my, my family's from, um, every, from Caribbean and melting pot. So that informed my sense of that black is a, is a very capacious big tent, you know, my sense of it. But then when it came to the West Coast, um, I had a lot of experience where people either thought I was... Latina or Italian or Jewish or Algerian or whatever. And then if you identify as black, they're like, well, you know, we don't really want to identify. You know, you can be something else if you want to. And it and it's that kind of experience that actually started to drive my research. And in fact, um, one of my first jobs, it was about a decade ago, there was a photographer on a campus and taking pictures of faculty of color. And that photographer sold my image, I signed away the rights to it. So I warn your viewers, like your listeners, never sign anything. Mm-hmm. And they sold it to uh, Getty Images, which is the largest uh, uh, image bank yeah. in the world. Yeah. And now, look up my image. They ended up selling it, and I saw myself on, it was the um, uh, Chicano congressional website, Hispanic congressional website. I was, as Latina, wow. I was on the sides of buses in Boston as the older than average non-English speaking person. Going, <laughs> what? Yeah. They could just repurpose my image. And that also led me to realize sometimes I'm clearly represented as white, but a lot of times I, they can darken and lighten my image. I'm also represented as black or just something of a little color. And and I re, that got me interested in the commercialization of uh-huh. mixed race, how serviceable these images are. I actually called the company, um, this is all a prelude to why I started making it an academic subject. I called the company and I said, you know, well, what's happening with the image? Um, and they said, well, you're a type Two, if I recall right, type one is their example was uh, racially identifiable. So Vietnamese like to be marketed to by other Vietnamese. They, whereas type three is what type two is racially ambiguous. You're not going to alienate people of color, but white people feel comfortable with you. 
And I thought, like, this is a new kind of racial, wow. racial profiling. Right. And I started to, to actually study it. I was teaching African-American. That's my expertise and background. But this started, I started to open up new, new kinds of, it seemed like something was happening in society mm-hmm. that people hadn't really been writing about. And it was happening to me again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of my background. That's how I started getting interested in the subject. So are you saying then, good, so are you saying then that, you know, you had already started as a lit person and then came to the study of mixed folk after you were studying literature, or is that something that influenced even the your focus in your literary studies? Well, my focus in my, my dissertation was on the tragic mulata over time, so I was always interested in that figure but as you know like that figure is contained within african-american literature so what so i was interested in the whole range of it but i understood race mixing as something that have you know that we had been writing and talking about and experiencing for a long time what was different was that the there was a a shift it seemed like in the last 10 years where people were talking about mixed race as a special interest group or special population mm-hmm. as sort of different mm-hmm. and so that also to thinking about South Africa and their colored population that was sort of an in-between or Brazil mm-hmm. and that and I found those were um, kind of frightening political precedents because the idea that mixed race people were a separate population mm-hmm do anything to advance social justice, certainly not. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, when I first met you, which was a couple of years ago, I remember very clearly you speaking about your work that you and I believe your husband were going mm-hmm. to do or were working on with, that's right. within South Africa. That's right. That's right. So that's right. It, it, this is related to that as well. Yeah, that was an, ex- an outgrowth of actually the book because I started looking at how mixed race um, people were being represented and how they were organizing in the United States. But of course, that led me immediately to think about, well, how does it work globally? You know, what, what has happened when people mobilize that way globally? Um, because I think, you know, with American exceptionalism, we always think we're so unique. And, and a lot of, there was a lot of talk about mixed race people as being the new millennial generation and the American melting pot distinctive to America. And I knew that was and so I thought that looking globally would kind of help provide a context for thinking about um, this new, not that mixed race people are new, but this new way of thinking about mixed right. race that seemed to be emerging. Right, right. Yeah, one of the things that really struck me um, that I found new um, in your text, one of many things actually, was when you were talking about um, the prevalence of mixed race studies in K to twelve curriculum. Yeah, can you yeah. talk a little bit about? That? Yeah, about that. Well, it surprised me too. Actually, I mean, it's it's interesting because one of the things that happened before it ever hit academia as a subject was there was a large push by um, parents who were in interracial relations uh, to. Um, make sure that their children, as they understood it, were represented and supported in the K-12. through And part of this had to do even way back with how we got the census changed, so that in this documented that the predominantly white mothers, not exclusively, but, um, you know, uh, went to the Office of Management and Budget and testified. And, and um, one of them, Susan Graham, brought her child, mm-hmm. so 
where it goes, right? Where I think it was like eight or something, um, as a sign of that these children um, need uh, political representation and need educational support. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways that they could do that was not just by changing a census designation, but also to start with K-12 and both produce books um, like, and I have a whole shelf of them actually, I'd show them to you, but a whole web that represented interracial families as as normal, um, as not, you know, debauched, as mm-hmm. sort of mainstream them, and, um, and also to kind of dramatize at a child's level some of the tensions that a child who might have light skin or kinky hair or look white but actually have racial um, background um, uh, of whatever, um, of color, uh, to, to make it, it, it seem okay. There was a, a great effort to, su- to support them, to, to sort of um, cap their experience. They might feel like excluded. or they might be, So there's a lot at school or about how you can love both your parents and, and all that. So there was this really big push to um, make it seem natural and healthy in the in these books. So there's a lot of fiction. And then there was a, pu- there was a push to also have uh, teachers make sure they include it. So there was also a push to, um, to make, encourage, let's say, when they wouldn't be encouraged to practice. <laughs> Um, school boards uh, changed the curriculum to make sure they included that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of fraught. On the one hand, it's part of a, an older movement to include texts by people of color in K-12 program. I know when I was growing up, you, you never, you know, you think of Jack and Jill or whatever, you don't think of um, uh, children's um, books. Or my, my mom was a uh, uh, an school librarian in Boston at that time, making sure that there were books available. So, because she understood that those books are forms of cultural instruction, they're not just literacy. You know, they're not just introducing to to lit um, to uh, to words, but to attitudes about relationships and about race itself. And so, uh, and on the one hand, it's part of that larger movement to be more inclusive. Yeah, but very particular. Um, mandate about how they wanted um, uh, those representations to that they made made sure was those stories about the happy nuclear family ended up being the only way that interracial relations were represented so and and for you know a kid who's four you really want to hear about uh, different kinds of relationships, but there was an opportunity there to represent children of divorced families or children of um, transracially adopted families. There's a few things like that, or um, families of uh, same-sex couples, other kinds of kinship relationships that the idea of exploring interracial relations, which used to be a taboo, could have opened up. Right. Not to. So they tend to be, curiously enough, Progressive in the sense that they're representing interracial relations, but rather conservative in that, you know, in the in the move to normalize these relations, they um, are very careful to only represent super happy, <laughs> normative um, families too. Yeah, for for sort. Of-
Yeah, I um you're cutting in and out sometimes. I don't know if it's um me or on my end, but do do you hear me clearly? Yeah. Okay, but you keep cutting in and out. So, but I can see you. So, um, I guess the question that I had once I w- once I was reading the K to twelve curriculum stuff um, is is there a specific moment where you know something that we can point to within society some some event that fueled the development, or can we say this was something that developed over time? Because I feel as though this is a surprise. Like, all of a sudden, we have hair products for mixed chicks. All of a sudden, we have, like, you know, not not all of a sudden in that it's like this year, but over the last few years, it has just kind of exploded, whereas, you know, we grew up, I, I definitely, my cousins, everybody, there's biracial young people people everywhere but this is new so is there a particular moment that you mm-hmm. can point to that this grows out of well i think that's a great question because the usual answer is it's just inexorable demographics there's more people mingling there's more immigration with relaxed immigration laws or used to be that used to be the argument um and that times are changing, the political climate is more, and that this is just the wave of the future. But you're absolutely right. I mean, mixed-race people have been around for a very, very long time, certainly in this country since the 1700s. What changed is the attitudes about them. And you're absolutely right that there has been, it's like a tipping point, really. And it changed pretty quickly because I know back uh, there was a book by John Spencer um, comparing the mixed-race movement, the rise of it, in the United States with South Africa. And this was in 1997. It was before the census, just three years before when it came out. And he, he didn't anticipate that there he, he could kind of see it happening, but he didn't think there could. You know, the legislation is very hard to change, and, and census is notoriously difficult to change. He just couldn't imagine there'd be a, a change. And yet there was such... Uh, political will on the part of particular people to make it happen. Um, some cynically say it's because the white middle class mothers got political access and leverage that other people wouldn't have. But for whatever, um, that changed. And with that political designation, it kind of opened up this flood of cultural representation that you see. You know, I mean, it, it was an opportunity. So you po- pointed out, like, a commercial opportunity, among other things, too. But that new hair for, for curly hair. That our, I had a student who was just doing a, an honors thesis on this. It wasn't just, it's not like we haven't had products for, for you know, curly hair before or loose hair. But they special section. They weren't in the black section. They weren't in, you know, whatever. Wow. And they were, it was a niche market and Nexus and others jumped on it. And, you know, there's a whole industry. It's not like those hair products are really that different than they ever right. would. But, you know, if you have like loose hair, we used to have, it's called good hair, whatever. And you suddenly thought, oh, I was, maybe I need these products. Yes. This new skin product that yes. is just, yeah. there's a new makeup kind of push, I, I can't remember, it was with Beyonce and she's listed, and other people, and she's listed as Cherokee, Black, you know, whatever. And someone made up a foundation specifically for that particular mix. Uh, it throws me. I, I'm, well, as we carry on, I'll, I'll share with you some things at, at particular points, but it, it definitely, I find it, um, the shift 
is what I was what I was asking about because I find that now that it's almost like this, as you said, a tipping point, this explosion, I find it a little bit disorienting. And that's one of the reasons why your book really drew me because I wanted to know what what really is going on. And um, of course, I want to talk about pop culture because I, I think that that's where, you know, people are talking about it most explicitly. Um, so anyways... Um, you begin your discussion with some some of the problematics with with uh, mixed race studies, and and you do that by examining um, instruction books, right? Of, of the way in which the people those instruction excuse me those instruction books picture or image uh, what people of mixed race background will look like. But before we go there, why don't we talk a little bit about your own book book cover? Um, yeah, let's talk about that. Well. I- are your listeners going to be able to see it somehow no. link to it? Cause it, it just is so oh. hard to describe it. Okay. Maybe we can link it when we post the, um, all right. I'll try and describe it. Okay. So this, the, the picture on the cover is of a performance piece by, uh, the artist Leslie Saar, who I really like. She comes from a family of artists. And it's called Baby Happy Brown Head, and it's part of a collection, uh, uh, an installation that used to be posted on mulattonation.com or, or large. I mean, uh, it was on the web. It was a, something she installed first at Swarthmore and then toured around. And it's an image of a baby doll that has a white, it's a, um, it's sexless, mm-hmm. so tells gender, mm-hmm. and it's uh, white, white body mm-hmm. and a brown head, and mm-hmm. it's stuck on, and it's very creepy looking. My daughter wouldn't let me take it home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like something that should be cuddly, like you want to pick it up, mm-hmm. but you look at it, and it's just not, and I really thought this was an interesting counter to all the coffee table books and the children's books that represent kind of sepia-colored loves uh, children that look as if they are the embodiment of the resolution of all racial tensions, you know, like if this is the, if this is where the race problem is going, just, you know, mix everybody up all together and it'll just sort of dissolve. Right. It's a reminder that of, of those kinds of divisions are still extant and also kind of pointing out a, a kind of send up of a, a lot of times there's the lay talk about people who are mixed and say, oh, I'm a quarter this, or I'm a third this, mm-hmm. right? As if your blood could be like, you exactly. know. Exactly, yeah. But it's very 19th century biological language about race. And people slip into it a lot. And this reminds you, like, okay, what would it look like if someone was, like, half black? Yes. Like, it would look ridiculous. And so it's a it's a very provocative right. piece that I really like because I didn't, there's so much emphasis on in a lot of, um, mixed race representation of the face, mm-hmm. uh, seeing on the faces if you can divine their racial mix because of that. Mm-hmm. They're almost always represented as young, uh, traditionally attractive people. Mm-hmm. And I think that fetishizing of mixed race people, which borders sometimes on exoticism, mm-hmm. and not the assumption that all mixed race people are light, mm-hmm. frankly, mm-hmm. either, mm-hmm. Um, is something that this baby head, mm-hmm. as it um, uh, disrupts, and yeah. so a way to put it right, not at just as saying you know you need to look at, and of course looking hopefully not just staring like 
Fulbeck's collections, but uh, he has a, a he tend Kit Fulbeck is a uh, a scholar produced several books. I don't know if you've seen them mm-hmm. of um, images of mixed race people, and he puts on one one of his first books. He has uh, an image of a mixed race person on one page, and then on the left hand side, he would have the kind of official designation. It might be, although it's ethnic and racial, he would have like you know Chinese, Peruvian, Italian, whatever, and then he'd allow a space for them to self-identify. Mm-hmm. Uh, wanted to do was encourage people to think about mixed race people wanting to self-identify um, just to choose their own race, which I think was also somewhat problematic. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll talk about it. But the main thing was you, you look at these pictures and it's just their, their heads. They don't have any um, from their head shot from the head up. And you encourage to really stare at them and to say, oh, I can see that. I can see this, you know. And that of the idea that you can always divine race on the body, mm-hmm. particularly the face, mm-hmm. just that that's a project in itself, that kind of staring. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, anyway, the what are you question. But I love Jackie Brownhead because he's like, yeah, you want to stare at this, but you're not exoticizing it. You're not um, trying to do, trying to figure out what race it is, um, which is, I think, a, a problematic anyway. Um, so that, I liked that it was a, I liked also that it was art mm-hmm. because I don't think a lot of, you know, you were mentioning before in pop culture, I think a lot of the more thoughtful ways of rethinking race mm-hmm. don't just fall into thinking of race as biological and we don't simply stare at mixed race people, um, as exotic, you know, um, new millennial people who are going to lead us into the future. Uh, I think that happens in the arts sometimes in performance in theater, in the literature, I think this. Even though I'm in an, you know, I'm an academic, I think sometimes um, the social sciences and um, and uh, 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 the the kind of uh, documentation of just uh, demographics doesn't quite capture that uneasy feeling you were feeling. That sense that there's a sea change and it's hard to put your finger on it. And I think that the the arts tend to do that. So that. Baby happy brown head. Yeah, definitely. I there's a quote that I um there's a quote that um I took from the section where you were talking about these um when you were giving your analysis of these uh, book covers and um I want if you don't mind I would I want to quote you because I feel like um the cover that you have here with Les- Leslie Sars um baby happy brown head. Yeah, is um, getting it. And um, here it is. So I'm quoting you now. Um, You choose artists, not just um, installation artists, but also graphic artists, which we'll get to shortly, who um, offer up capacious racial identities fully consistent with heterogeneity, postmodernity, and self-examination. Theirs is a worried, stirred up, touched up, and held up blackness, end quote. And I really, I really, um, I thought that that quotation got to what this um, cover did for me because it troubles the idea that you, I mean, in addition to um, gesturing to that, you know, archaic language of half this or a quarter this or a third this, it also um, 
troubles this idea that we know what biracial looks mm-hmm. like. Right. Yeah. You yeah. know what biracial looks like. I, um, in talking with my girlfriends about this, I, I, one of my girlfriends, she's biracial and she is always recognized as biracial, but her brother who's mm-hmm. dark mm-hmm. is not, is never, and people never believe him that he's biracial. <laughs> they never believe him. And so, um, until they see him with his father, of course, and, and his mom. And so that got me, you know, it always gets me thinking these questions or, or when people talk about you know, mixed raceness as some sure look. Right. Um, it's right. like there are certain people that you are definitely excluding, which you bring up when you're talking about as, the images. As you point out too, that's a that's a newer phenomenon. So the kind of books you we you were mentioning before mm-hmm. uh, for your listeners are like coffee table books, anthologies, photo collections that are out there that you can buy if you just pull up on the web. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot feature that nuclear family. They're almost always light skinned, just as you were talking about. And that's a way of shaping our um, perception of what we think mixed is. So I try. It's very hard to uncouple it. Like if you were instead of thinking of um, if you're like in New Orleans, for instance, mm-hmm. in the 1940s, even now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you'd see people who you know there's blonde, blue eyed black people. There's mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and people aren't going to say, oh, you can't be black right. or you must be mixed. I mean, whatever it is, 80 plus percent of black people are mixed anyway. Mm-hmm. So the question isn't about blood quantum. It's about perception. And you're absolutely right. There's some strange narrowing of what counts as black, mm-hmm. like and who decides it and who might be mixed. I have a, a student of mine who's uh, Native American and African American and dark skin, mm-hmm. and he wanted to join a mixed group on campus. Mm-hmm. And... It, it's awful. So many mixed communities feel like there's racial gatekeeping. They're not black enough or, or whatever to, to belong. But they themselves were enacting the same exclusivity. They, they were telling him he couldn't possibly experience the same things they were because he was too black. Like, you know, and so since when it became an exclusive purview of like light skin. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that has really changed because people like, you know, in the media who are light skinned black people. I start hearing now, you know, younger people say, oh, well, they can't be black or they're not really black mm-hmm. or, um, and, and I find that, uh, you know, disturbing because they're, they're reinforcing a very narrow view of black. Usually it's informed by the media, right. like they'll watch on television. I'll just assume we had Valerie Jarrett, who's Obama's presidential, you okay. know, advisor out. She was a Stanford black woman. And, you know, in of my, Skin black woman. She right. identifies as black, of course. But things are like, oh, she can't be black. Like, wow. According to what? So they've been trained visual, visually to say, just as you said, that this is black and this must not be. And that training of the the eye um, occurs. I want to suggest in some of these books and some of the ways in which um, uh, the, we sort of are starting to reshape our. Um, the way we perceive mm-hmm. and you know say, well that's not such a bad thing you know i it, what what what's what does it matter mm-hmm. um, but as other people have pointed out too it matters sometimes if there's a kind of narrowing of what counts as black not just how you look but how you walk talk act um 
and how, and there's a sense of mem- I think I, when I was starting off that conversation with you about how big a tent black historically has been, mm-hmm. there's a narrowing to say, just no, it's just those people. Mm-hmm. Just those people who walk, practice their faith, have a certain skin tone who are black. And a lot, I'm not quite as cynical as this, but a lot of people have worried that the, the uh, glamorization of mixed race has come at the expense, or it certainly has occurred at the same time as the diminishment of civil rights and traditional mm-hmm. civil rights lobbies. Mm-hmm. So either, you know, people react very violently to the idea that somehow mixed race identification means you're anti-black. I mean, people get very upset if you suggest that to them. Um, one of the things that most interested me when I was writing this book and also the students are interested in is, can you have identification and still be thoroughly engaged with traditional civil issues of civil rights right. and social justice. Mm-hmm. Because the inequities, especially between, even though, of course, mixed race occurs beyond the black-white paradigm, mm-hmm. still black at the bottom of every socioeconomic index that there is. So that's the way. And so the idea that mixed race people are going to be the answer to the problem um, or that this new community could have a special interest or special status mm-hmm if it can't also account for or doesn't see itself as, you know, related to um, the continuing inequities that happen to people of color, of more color, mm-hmm. at the same time. So I want I'm curious why that people were so into this idea that new mixed race people are the, the are new, for one thing, and that they're the answer to the race problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's very compelling and convincing to a lot of people because it suggests we all just have to mingle mm-hmm. <laughs> you know have interracial relations and have babies and the problem will just go away right. and it's so much easier than protesting and lobbying and yeah. legislative changes that have to happen um so it's very seductive well it's not and it's not new i think that it's it's historically i think it's that that narrative has been um um Seductive, and it, like I said, it's not new. If we think about any time, in fact, one might argue that the rise of this, you know, mixed raceness at this time as the new um, progressive progressive movement to towards, I don't know. Yeah, who knows what? I, yeah, I mean, that in of itself is a question. But there are people, as you said, that, that recognize. Uh, mixed races as an answer to maybe social, you know, societal racial ills, that one could make the argument that that argument, that point of view suggests that there are serious tensions within society at this precise moment. Um, Particularly when we look historically at when those arguments come up, when that kind of argument is made, it's usually when there are tensions. So, for instance, you know, think West Side Story, right? Mm-hmm. And how this is when you have, you know, a, a large influx of yeah, um, of um, Puerto Ricans coming from, obviously, Puerto Rico, and how they make this story of, instead of dealing with the issues that are really going on within society, particularly in New York at that time, They have this story, West Side Story, where it shows this love affair between the two people. I I think that this seductive, this story, this story, this narrative that 
people who are particularly at, at conflict can be, the conflict can be resolved through a love story. I think Pocahontas, they, I mean, it happens, we do this all the time. I think that's a really great prehistory to it. I, I think that, because it means that you have to ask why now, not just, mm-hmm. oh, just have space people. I was like, what cultural anxieties are being resolved? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when you say West Side Story, because through a kind of romance plot, it's not as if those racial tensions can't be dramatized, but they're contained. Mm-hmm. Flag them and then shape them, mm-hmm. and it pro- seems to provide a kind of narrative or dramatic resolution of them. So I talk a little bit about, um, like, do you remember that uh, Face of America, the Eve, on that Time magazine, mm-hmm. 1992? Mm-hmm. It's a picture of, some people will remember it as kind of infamous. It was a special issue of Time magazine on immigration, of all things, but the cover was a, what was then considered new technology, photoshopping mm-hmm. uh, a woman who was supposed to be the result of the editors combining all of the world. Mm-hmm. This is what she would look like. And what she looks like oh, high yellow. Yeah. She's very pale. She looks white, really, but just a slight, maybe not even a tan. She's completely shorn of all cultural markers or hair. Mm-hmm. She has light green eyes, although they even concede if you, you know, because brown is the dominant eye. Peoples of the world, she would have had brown eyes. They, they shaped her so she looks like this little glossy-lipped ingenue. And the cover suggests, look, the cover of America. I was like, oh, okay. You don't have to worry about race mixing. But the magazine is all of these rocks about what do you do when people don't learn English or don't speak the language or they practice or they have different eating habits. And the inside of that uh, series is seething with tech. You know, what to do with the immigration pressures and all this sort of, and yet the cover is like, oh, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you're absolutely right, absolutely right to capture that this, that this idea that interracialism is the answer um, should lead us to the question. Why is that so appealing now? And what kind of anxieties are creating now? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. It's just ironic if you just kind of look back, these love stories always come up, and it's when there are these significant tensions between, you know, hegemonic or dominant culture and some other, some other marginalized group, whether it's Native Americans, whether it's blacks, whether it's, you know, um, Puerto Ricans, um, particularly those that look black, or are black, but ethnically not, right? One of the things that's so difficult about this, though, it's one thing if you're talking about it historically. It's another thing if you suggest to a couple who's married and have children uh, that they their choices aren't, are anything other than just a, because they loved each other. I mean, people get very upset. It's one thing they can look like, oh, I can, I can do that. So some past movie or whatever or book. But when it comes to them, one of the things that's so Hmm. challenging is that there's not one... I've had students who go back and interview their parents who are, you know, interracial and say, well, you know, what do you eat together? It's like, oh, our love transcends race. It doesn't have anything to do with it. And if you scratch further, they either get really mad, like, what? what? (laughs) Or they sometimes can see how certain historical narratives of race animate their love relationship, but it's very hard when it's a private relationship. It does not invite um, 
critical analysis. And so it's very touchy, really touchy to, um, I, when I first started giving talks on the subject, I had, I rate, um, largely mothers, white mothers who were like, what are you saying? My child, you know, I have a right to define my child. However, I say, and you're interfering with it. As you know, you should never come between a mother and her child. You know, I was like, I should be studying the 19th century again. (laughs) This is getting touchy. This is, yeah, I, um, well, okay. So uh, just following in this lines, I think if we we follow the, 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 in the same vein that you were going just now and you're talking about, um, you know, people getting uh, really enraged when you talk to them about their children and tell them things that they don't necessarily think. It's, it's this, I think one of the things that's fueling it is an idea or a, a fear of exclusion that maybe my child doesn't necessarily belong here, so I'm going to create, or my child's not that, it, she or he's this. And so what you, you do really nicely in the text is is really debunk or trouble these ideas that, people who are really invested in this this kind of um, mixed-race activism um, as a separate or distinct experience outside of anything anyone has ever experienced before. Um, I really love the way that you debunk it and talk about people who do look at mixed race, but not outside of blackness, but rather, or not to replace blackness, but rather to prompt a deeper investigation and expansion of it. Um, you use a term that Bertram Ash uses called, and it's called black exploration. And that's kind of the way that you define it, that it's, it's, it's work that, well, can you talk more about it, what black, black exploration is? From Ash's term, of course, he's referring on black exploitation, yeah. but his idea is that uh, with black exploration is that black, it's always been sort of a, uh, uh, self-reflective and critical about what is black, not like one thing, you know, and who is black and what are the elaborate of it. And especially certainly in the early twenties, when you have people from all over the world coming to New York, those ideas of blackness have always been changing, always been sort of troubled and always frankly included this question of mixedness. And so that first quote you read before too, is, um, it's the idea that, Blackness is an investigation. It is, it's not, and it contains heterogeneity. It contains mixedness. It never, what, you know, just um, monosical kind of way. So I think that's really important to um, to keep in mind. And I, I like it. You know, I want to go back to something you were just bringing up, which was, you know, it's true to be sensitive, and I certainly uh, want to be and try to be, to uh, worried about having their... Um, you know, they're included or they feel excluded. And when I first started investigating this about, I guess it would be like a decade ago, I went to, in Oregon, there's a large um, mixed-race organization community. I went to one of their, I guess it would be called a conference. There are a lot of families, interracial families there, mm-hmm. an academic conference. But And one of the things that we noticed is that the families that were interracial separated themselves from communities of color who were actually there too. And there was an interesting, and they preemptively separated themselves. And so that became actually a topic of discussion. So it isn't always clear whether or not people were 
self-segregating, you know, in, in, in defensively to say, well, I'm sure I'm not going to be included, by, you know, in the black community, so I'm going to hold myself a bit. I see my students, who sometimes the students who are um, identified as mixed, won't go to the black house. Like, they are so sure they're going to be excluded that they don't even walk up to the door. And so it's not that racial gatekeeping can't happen because, you know, we have hope. Yeah. There is this sort of reverse too, where um, certainly college campuses, some, you know, students will say, well, you're not black enough because you're, you know, you're not practicing the right faith, or you're not from the right part of the country, or, you know, ridiculous things that we do to each other, but uh, but in this particular case, it was problematic because those interracial families were assuming they wouldn't be included. Now, sometimes they might be, but they weren't reaching out to other sort of communities. They, they weren't connecting up with um, these other communities, and actually, a lot of them. This became a subject too that people were, were so terribly interested in civil rights. Now, people listening to this will probably think, like, just slamming on, you know, interracial organizing. And I certainly don't mean to, but I do think I, it would be great if some of these groups weren't so antagonistic to traditional civil rights lobbies mm-hmm. and see their desire to hook up with. Um, could see their interest as not just a special interest, but something larger. I think I cite in the book uh, one of their, when Obama is a uh, sitting senator, mm-hmm. the interface group goes to visit him and they tape it, they have it it's on a, a film, and they ask him because they think that he'll be a legislative whip for them, sort of representing, you know, <laughs> in, in, uh, in the Senate and Congress. Uh, and and uh, he ends up saying, you know, sometimes. He was sensitive, but he said sometimes it's important not to see yourself as too special, you mm-hmm. know, to work on behalf of all people, too. And it was a really canny kind of comment. It was sympathetic, but it was also a resistance to saying, yes, I'm going to, you know, be representing you or mixed race people. Yeah, yeah. Or, you, you know, unless you edit, you know, choose to edit this out, you know, you cannot use me just, you know, uncritically. Um as, as you move forward in your, your study or investigation in mixed raceness. And that was one thing, um, you know, I thought you did a really good job emphasizing the problematics of certain arguments that mixed, um, that certain groups that are, are talking about mixed race, act, at least as activism, um, without, without saying it, you're the problem or, um, there is no value in this, but definitely taking the time to highlight um, the ways in which the way that some of them are arguing are unhelpful or, mm-hmm. you know, contradictory. And here's how, look, there are artists who are engaging mixed raceness. I'm not suggesting, or you say, you know, I'm not suggesting that we not look at this, but look, let's look at some examples of individuals who are examining mixed raceness very critically, in very critical ways that don't exclude. Right. Yeah. I'm so glad you went there because I don't mean the book simply to be criticizing. Mm-hmm. So when when you point out that the, some in the arts, and by that in the book it means the literature, drama, the, the drama, there's graphic, comic, narratives, all of that, that is a way of representing a mixed-race experience that's particular, that responsive, to the distinctiveness of an experience, falling into some of the traps 
that that's what I mean by critical that I can I see some of the groups doing and you know like the idea that all race is free choice mm-hmm. or race or you know people are all light skinned or that we're a distinct race or whatever mm-hmm. uh, what I like they're saying look there's a different way to imagine this um, so it's not just shutting down those possibilities but I think they're much more forward thinking but because they're not legislating change. They're not saying, here's my five-point plan. Or, you know, it's not like uh, I, I talk about Maria Root's, you know, uh, mixed-race manifesto uh, with, that she generated. It's very popular. It's thought. You know, they don't tell you what to do. Um, thank God. But they open up critical ways to reimagine talking about mixed-race that might be more progressive in the sense that they tend to be more exclusive mm-hmm. and not to just antiquated notions of race just as you said um, and they can lead to more inclusive communities mm-hmm. potentially mm-hmm. Um, it's hard baby happy brown head to think oh <laughs> yeah. you know it, it just it's as you said before it's troubling yeah. they're just moving. but I think hopefully like in a, in a good way yeah Okay, so you're listening to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Sherry Johnson, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Michelle Elam, professor of English at Stanford University and author of the new book, The Souls of Mixed Folk, Race, Politics, and Aesthetics in the New Millennium. Okay, I'd like to read a quote to lead us into the discussion of one of my favorite chapters in your book, okay? And I quote, Magruder's characters are all shades of black. Moreover, they register a blacker or not only in relation to other characters, emphasizing the provisional, situational perceptions of race through color. In short, even Magruder's pixels are political. End quote. Let's talk about the boondocks. Have either read him or, you know, got syndicated on Comedy Central. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Have you seen the late night show? Um, I haven't recently, no, but I have seen uh, episodes from old seasons. Looking at the comics got me thinking a little bit more about how do you represent skin color? No, and um, and 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 not just skin color, but what it's supposed to to represent and the quote that you picked takes me to one of the ways I think the art and in this case the graphic novel makes you realize that um, it's not just someone's black just because of their skin color because one is about cultural performance in that in the boondocks it's really clear um, and then it's also situational so there's a great scene where Jasmine who's the little 10 year old prepubescent mixture <laughs> hair and she's sure that she just says you know frizzy hair and he's like yeah right you're you know know, Angela Davis hair is what you have (laughs) she's not she's not ready to kind of concede blackness to uh, Huey who's the main character but then she goes to a little white white girl in this prompt too and a little white if Huey reads her as, as Jasmine is black, the little white girl doesn't recognize black because it doesn't look like the media stereotypes of it. And so she says, oh, my parents just said some black people moved into the neighborhood. You know, what are we going to do about it and everything? And then Jeff 
concept of blackness kind of comes in relief in relationship to little white girl's whiteness. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's just a conversation about just how you look like, mm-hmm. but your, your experience, you know, your blood, the, her blackness, how she understands her blackness isn't in isolation. It's a relationship. It's a social negotiation right. with Huey and, and a white girl. Right, right. And then that, and I, that is something that, uh, I love about the comics, um, particularly yeah. his engagements with Jasmine or the, the scenes with, with um, Jasmine because that's missing. That's missing in some of the um, other rhetoric that we're hearing about the specialness of, um, you know, for lack of, a, lack of a better term, really, because everybody's special, I guess. Or maybe do we want to be called special? I don't know. Sometimes that's not a good thing. But anyways, you get what I'm saying that, um, you know, he gets at the fact that there are, you can go to in one context and be read as black, as a right. bi- biracial person, and yet in another and not be read as black. Um, mm-hmm. And that too needs to be discussed. I, I mean, I think that if we are talking about mixed raceness that I would love to hear more about how one negotiates even that space. You know, how do you negotiate being in one particular space where one reads you as not black and you hear these kind of conversations that you know you're not really supposed to be privy to? Um, I would love to know more about that, you know, as opposed to just kind of stepping back or outside of this has nothing to do with me. I love my mom. I love my dad. You know, right? You know, well, what often gets framed is uh, either uh, society hating my race, and I don't like that, and so I'm just going to pick my own race. Mm. Just choose your own race. Or the idea that um, you know society is the only one to determine your race. So it's the way race studies now talks about races. It's a negotiation between those two. You you. An act of self-assertion. Mm-hmm. I'm mixed. I'm Cabellan Asian. But part of it is also an ongoing social negotiation. So the cliche would be you can insist you're not black all you want, but then you walk out and can't get a taxi or something right. like that. I mean, right. it's always something between the two. One of the things that a lot of my students don't, that is disturbing about the idea that race is just an act of will is for some very narrow set of people who may be race, perceived as racially ambiguous in a particular mm-hmm. time place, mm-hmm. they act as if sometimes that their ability to choose, like just changing clothes in the morning, is something that extends to everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think that itself to then not about larger civil rights issues. Mm-hmm. Because if, you know, free choice, I get to be one thing today and another thing tomorrow, and um, then I think it's to, one, it's simplifying how race tends to actually work in the world, and two, it disconnects people, I think, from understanding um, how other people might not be able to simply choose their race, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and so I think that that's important to because he comes so far down hard on Jasmine, mm-hmm. and is he exposing all the self-deceptions, mm-hmm. potentially, of, uh, of mixed race identification, he got so much pushback. A lot of the bloggers, the respondents, just, I include them in the book, in the end notes, but people were furious, yeah. as in, like, death threats, because wow. they felt like, you know, Jasmine needed protection, and it really got, just, 
backlash. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't even think Jasmine, I'm not even sure Jasmine appears in the, a, a lot in the, um, video version of it anymore. I, I haven't seen Jasmine in the, in the video version, actually. The episodes that I've watched, I haven't seen her. Um, but one of the key things that I love that you bring out of that section is, um, well, a couple things, but one of the things that we'll talk about um, or I'll mention here is that he troubles the idea that, you know, just cite, just citing your family tree is somehow an indication of social progress. Yeah, and I, anyway, so I think that that's just so, so weird. I, I want to talk more about that, but I, I want to also get to um, talking a little bit about Nathaniel Creekmore and the distinction between their reception even though in maintaining he does trouble the idea of black or, or I'm sorry, as mixed races being only one or two things in, in some of the very similar ways that um, Magruder does. I mean, what do you think kind of drives the, the, the difference in, in reception between these two comic artists? Okay, I'll, I'll keep it somewhat short because I, I have she has students at outside my office now <laughs> too. But um, I, for those who don't know, Nate Creekmore is uh, biracially identified, and he had a syndicated comic strip column that was showed in the UK and here called Maintaining, and his was really one of the first to just dedicate the whole script to this conversation about mixed race. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you pointed out. He was quite popular. He was on Mixed Chicks chat, uh, podcasts. He was mm-hmm. really celebrated. Whereas, um, um, you know, the boondocks were pretty much slammed as being culturally, uh, racially chauvinistic. And, mm-hmm. you know, his black conscripting all mixed race people into blackness. It, was, it had a very negative pushback. His didn't, I think even though he made Creek more in maintaining explores some of the same problems with mixed race identification. He, he had one, one um, uh, plate where he's looking at um, what he calls the, the kind of fantasy of half, half America. That's right. Yeah, sort of land where everybody's happy together and they're dancing. And, but he does it a little bit more gently. And because his protagonist uh, is mixed but black identified and, um, and the tension between Black and mixed isn't quite as sharp, right? I think he got he got a bit of a pass, but that also speaks to the artistry. You know, I mean, how how pointed and how explicitly political can art be before somebody pushes back and says that's just propaganda? Mm -hmm. And I think they felt that with um, the Boondocks, it was just too much finger in your eye, even though he's be that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One second, I'll tell my students I can't talk with them just the right way. Can okay, you... yeah, sure. I'll, I'll hold for a second. So you've been listening to uh, New Books in African American Studies. I'm Sherry Johnson, and today I'm joined by the author of The Souls of Mitzvah, Race, Politics, and Aesthetics in the New Millennium. Dr. Michelle Elam. Michelle, we, we, you know, don't have to, we haven't even t- scratched the surface. I, I'm happy to say that we've gotten into the meat, I think, of what your um, wonderful book is about. 
but um, there's something for everyone if you're interested in looking at how mixed race issues are dealt with within literature. We can find that here. If you're interested in how it's dealt with in comedy and television, um, I'm thinking of um, Dave Chappelle. You'll find that here as well. Um, And so there's really a rich discussion of the ways in which um, mixed raceness can be looked at and dealt with in ways that allow us to think about where we need to go in order to get that social equality, continue to continue to move in that direction. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time. So before we go, can you tell us what you're working on now? What? So much. I appreciate this conversation. And I really hope that the conversation will continue. And thank you so much for characterizing the book as opening these things up in different realms too. The, what I'm working on now, I'm actually part of a, uh, a national art group that's uh, advancing something called the Mixed Race Initiative, and they're interested in having people across the teach classes on mixed race and share our curriculum so that it's not just the history of mixed race people, but sort of thinking about these more progressive ways they can talk about it. And I'm particularly working with um, an artist, uh, Laura Kina, who's out of DePaul, because mm-hmm. both of us are interested in mixed race art. Mm-hmm. And so we're developing some curriculum around that, too. I encourage anybody to go look up her work, too, because I think that there's a lot more in the arts that we can look at yeah. as well. Of course, I'm in, you know, the humanities as well. Um, and just uh, continuing to work with um, students and young people, because unlike other fields of scholarship where faculty are sort of we have the knowledge and we're passing it on, you know, so, so supposedly to the younger folk, it's often younger people who are pushing the bounds of this discussion. And so I've actually found that the classrooms and the conversation like, like that we're having now have actually driven a lot of the research. So it's sort of flipping the hierarchies, which are really, I find, and exciting, and, and which is why I also want to just continue this conversation. So I'll be looking at mixed race and continuing also to look at mixed race globally in South Africa and Brazil too, see how it functions there. Can you give us the spelling of Laura Kina's work so that our, our um, audience, if they desire to go ahead and take a look at some of her art, they can? K-I-N-A. Mm-hmm. Her name is Laura, and she's at DePaul. University, and I think she has some of her syllabi and some of her um, installations, like links to her her artistic installations. Up, she's really she does really interesting work. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, and and you know we wish you all the very best in your future endeavors. Thank you so much. It's been delightful. Hello, I'm Sherry Johnson host of the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, and you've been listening to my conversation with Dr. Michelle Elam, where we discuss her new book, The Souls of Mixed Folk, Race, Politics, and Aesthetics in the New Millennium. I hope you'll join me next time.